So he, actually, he said it's okay if we record the whole thing. So he's got all of our IDs, and he's putting our information into his phone while he's holding my passport, your ID, ID. and our driver's ID. It's about 11 a.m., and what you just heard happens to us just minutes after Colombian-American reporter Luis Gallo picks me up from my hotel in Medellin. Getting ready to go out on our day of reporting, and I don't think when we were here in 1989 that we ever got stopped by the police kind of for a regular check. I think we would have had a heart attack if that had happened in 1989. There's a thing in Colombia where these type of searches, everything is done in the name of security. That was really strange for me, Luis, because when I was down in Medellin 30 years ago, there was a lot of violence. But I don't remember this kind of high-intensity police presence. Am I right about that? Yeah, so before, there wasn't much police presence. I mean, the security levels were not as great as they are right now. I mean, some places were kind of lawless. So it's like they like seeing the police. For a lot of Colombians, the presence of police gives them a sense of security because there's that contrast of the times of Pablo Escobar. And most people think they know about Medellin now because of Narcos, that Netflix series that portrays Pablo Escobar as both a bloody psychopath as well as a very loving family man. But you and I know that there's a lot more to the story of Medellin. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Today, we travel to Medellin, Colombia. We'll take a journey through the city's transformation. this story, I asked Luis Gallo to meet me in Medellin. He's a Colombian-American journalist and a producer. I wanted to spend some time in the city in order to understand what's been happening there since my last visit in the late 1980s, because a lot has happened. In just 30 years, Medellin has transformed itself from being the cocaine capital of the world and the epicenter of Colombia's armed conflict into a place that's often described now as a model city. In fact, it's been voted the most innovative city in the world. And with this rise of narcomania on television, there's also a new kind of global attention that's being paid on Medellin. Sometimes it's unwanted, and it really focuses on the city's bloody past. And for you, Luis, this means a lot. Yes, it's personal. I mean, everything that happened in Medellin, everything that happened in Colombia during those times affected the rest of my family's lives and my life. Let's start back in 1989. The Medellin cartel was booming. The cartel had declared a full-on war on the Colombian state. So there were car bombs in the cities, especially Medellin. There were assassinations of police officers. It was, a, it was a very tumultuous time. Medellin, Colombia is about a six-hour plane ride from New York City. Medellin, known as the city of eternal spring, now lives under the constant shadow of violence. Except for Beirut, it has the highest murder rate of any city anywhere. 
That's my voice when I was a younger journalist. And I went down to Medellin to do that documentary, along with a collaborative piece with Rolling Stone magazine. And while this was going on, I was a small boy, and my father was a captain in Colombia's National Police, working in the anti-narcotics unit. So everything that was happening in the country, especially in Medellin, was affecting every aspect of our lives. Because in a sense, my father was the biggest enemy of the narcos. So what do you remember as a little kid? Like, what are your... What are some of the earliest memories that you have about the work that your dad did? I didn't have babysitters. I had my own bodyguard. What? You had your own bodyguard? And then my brother had his own bodyguard. We would go to school in two different vehicles that were identical. Just in case they would attack one of them, there would be a 50-50 chance we would survive. We were evacuated in the middle of the night via helicopter. Why does your dad decide to get involved in anti-narcotics work in the 1980s, which was probably the most dangerous field that you could think about working in. Oh, he was a total idealist. He had this patriotic sense that he could do something for the country to make it a better place, to defeat the criminals, to bring back order to the country, to fight this war. He loved this country so much and he believed that he could make it a better place for everyone, for us to live. One day, a note written in, in newspaper clippings came to our house. It said, Captain, we're going to get you where it hurts you the most, your kids. I was about four years old. My brother was must have been about six years old. So we had our own bedrooms at our house, but we were all asleep in the same bedroom with my parents. And the bedroom had a door to the patio and a ladder just in case, you know, we were attacked or anything happened. They just made it seem like we were having slumber parties every night. Um, so it was kind of fun. So as a little kid, do you remember the first time you heard the name Pablo Escobar? I remember the name. And I remember also thinking when I was in Bogota, thinking that Pablo Escobar was going to come after us for some reason and being scared of him. Um, And also when we lived in Bogota, he put a bomb like five blocks away at a shopping mall and our windows were shattered. By this point, Pablo Escobar had declared a full-blown war on the Colombian state and the Colombian government had just passed an extradition agreement with the United States, meaning that If or when Pablo Escobar was captured, he could have spent the rest of his life in a U.S. prison. In November of 1989, the same year that I came to Medellin, Pablo Escobar bombed an Avianca aircraft mid-flight, killing all 107 people on board. Two Americans were among the dead, prompting the first Bush administration to begin operations to support the Colombian forces in their search for Pablo Escobar. So with American money and American pressure, that unit of special forces was trained and equipped to capture Pablo Escobar. At the same time, in response to that pressure, the Medellin cartel went on a bombing campaign that turned Medellin into mayhem. This is when Medellin became the murder capital of the world. 
many young men in Medellín were being recruited by the Medellín cartel to become like the soldiers for the cartel. Manuel Espinazo grew up in Pablo Escobar's neighborhood. And soon as sense him and his friends and the guys in his neighborhood had to make a decision whether to become a hitman, a sicario for the cartel, or study and continue a different path. La oportunidad que estaba ofreciendo en el mundo del narcotráfico o optamos por la vía de seguir estudiando y, y apostar. So back in 1989, Manuel Espinazo, you know, like many other men in the neighborhood that he lived in, he had a really tough decision to make, uh, which was to decide uh, whether to join the cartels or not. You were having to make that decision. Am I going to be going and suddenly making fast money, dealing drugs? What did that look like? Empieza uno a ver amigos que aparecen con moto, con carro. Manuel started seeing his friends buying motorcycles, buying expensive clothes. They had money to go to parties on weekends and take, you know, girls out. And they became the neighborhood's playboys. Manuel remembers how uncertain things were at the time in Medellín. He saw that a lot of the friends who were joining the cartel were also dying. He says that time in Medellín was really crazy, but that a lot of them also thought that this could be what might lead them to a better life. You know, the truth is, like, if he didn't continue going to school and he followed his friend's footsteps, he would probably be dead by now. Because today, like, only four members of the Medellin cartel are alive. Three of them are in, are in prisons abroad, and only one of them is free and out and about after serving a 23-year-long sentence. His name is John Jairo Velasquez, and he's also known as Popeye, or Popeye in English. Popeye was Pablo Escobar's right-hand man and top sicario. He recruited young boys from the comunas, and he actually trained them as assassins. Popeye admitted to killing over 250 people himself, and he was sentenced to 30 years in prison after he surrendered to Colombian authorities in 1992. He served 23 of those years in prison, and he was released early on parole for good behavior. And we should mention that in Colombia, there is no death penalty or life in prison, so the longest a person can get is 60 years. Hola, Maria. So right now I'm at my apartment in Medellin, and I am waiting for a car, which is almost here. And this morning we're going to go interview Popeye. I made contact with Popeye through Twitter, and by the time that he finally agreed to an interview, I had already left Medellin. So I was going to call into this interview by phone. So I just got to the front of his building. I'm going to tell the doorman. Buenas, señor. El 1205, Luis Gallo, por favor. And I'm going to head up to, to meet him. For a few seconds then, I lost you on the phone, and I got so worried. All sorts of crazy things came into my imagination. Maria. Hola, perdón. No, 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 no. No, no, I didn't disappear. I'm here. I'm going to, I'm in front of his door. I'm going to ring the doorbell. So as part of the agreement, he requested that I go alone to his apartment. It was a little disturbing to know that I was going to this guy's house by myself. You know, somebody who's killed hundreds of people. And here we are. Hola, buenos días, ¿cómo estás? Bien, bien. Aquí tengo a María en el teléfono también. Allá, hola María, ¿cómo estás? Hola, ¿cómo estás? He is very, very friendly. Then as soon as I get in, I see 
all these Hannibal Lecter masks hanging on his wall. And then I see a tripod with a camera pointing at where I'm going to sit. And he tells me that he's going to record the whole interview. So I just kind of settle in. I just kind of sit down and start asking what his tattoos mean on his arm. Here I have the skulls. That means death. This is the arm that I kill with. Right, so I tell him, you mean the arm you used to kill with? To which he responds, I kill. I have no problem killing a son of a bitch. And that's who I'm sitting in front of. Maria takes it over from here. So Popeye, take me back to 1989 in Medellin. The year 1989 was the most important in the war of the Medellin cartel and the hurricane that was the war. We are fighting in the streets, we are killing police officers and having shootouts in the streets. Block by block, car bombs are going off in Medellin. Popeye, can you try and explain this love and this loyalty that you had for Pablo Escobar. Mira, Pablo Escobar Gaviria para nosotros no era un padre, no era un amigo, no era un patrón, no era un jefe, era un Dios. Pablo Escobar for us was not a boss or a friend. He was God. Pablo Escobar Gaviria never disrespected us. We would eat at the table with him. We were in his orgies. We would die for Pablo and would go to prison for him. The Medellin cartel was a big family. So when I was in Medellin, I was really freaked out because, you know, we got these messages that we were being watched. So were we, in fact, being watched? Was I right? Mira, los mensajes eran correctos. El patrón siempre se aseguraba de que notificáramos los periodistas, pero para que se fueran. Yes, that's right. We sent those messages. The boss always notified the journalists so they would leave. You should thank God we didn't kill you. You were at great risk of us killing you because in a war, you have to shoot everyone. Let's be honest. We were at war, Maria. Coming up on Latino USA, in its darkest hour, Medellin sees a glimmer of hope. Stay with us, no te vayas. When the economy goes haywire, Planet Money is here to make sense of it for you. From the big bailouts to the tiny details of a vaccine stockpile. One of the first thing we did was secure a large number of chicken flocks. So these are like hardworking government chickens? They are hardworking government chickens. That's NPR's Planet Money podcast. Listen now. We're back. And before the break, producer Luis Gallo and I were speaking with Pablo Escobar's former number one hitman known as Popeye, or Popeye, a man who was at the center of the Medellin cartel's war against the Colombian state. And Luis, this was, again, a very personal war for you. 
Right. It was it was a war that my father was fighting. So my father ends up leaving the national police and he joins the National Oil Company of Colombia. He becomes the head of security and logistics for the construction of an oil pipeline that is being built through, you know, FARC and narco territories. It was a very, very dangerous job, but he knew the territories well. He has done operations in those territories. So I guess he was kind of like the right guy for the job. The Fuerzas Armadas Revolucionarias de Colombia, or FARC, were a leftist guerrilla group who took up arms against the government in 1964. At the time, the FARC was the largest rebel group in Latin America, and they started to partner with the cartels in drug trafficking and in kidnapping in order to fund their war against the state. One weekend when we were visiting my grandmother, my mother was setting the table. I guess we were, we were ready to have lunch. And then we saw breaking news on the television that the FARC rebels had attacked the pipeline where my father was working at. So I just, I remember hearing the news reporter saying that the rebels had taken hostages. And one of those hostages was my father. As part of my father's job with the National Police, he was also fighting insurgents who were beginning to infiltrate the business of drug trafficking. And so in a sense, he was also the FARC's enemy. My father, he was easy to recognize because he was tall, about six foot three, which is in Colombia is pretty tall, slim, had this elegant air to him, kind of had this, this pride, this way of moving and looking that made him stick out. So when my mother saw this on television, on the news report, she said that she knew that my father would die. The FARC rebels eventually freed the other hostages, but kept my father, gave him a war tribunal, and executed him. So right before his death, he was able to leave a message with one of the civilian witnesses of the war tribunal. And he told my mother that she knew how to be strong. They had prepared for this moment and that he was sorry that their time had run out so fast. How old were you? I was almost six. I was almost six years old. The funeral was paid for by the military, the national police. He was buried next to the president's daughter. Trumpets, you know, the whole ceremony, like many people. It was like a movie. It was, it was surreal. And I remember like at the funeral home and I kept on asking like, when is he going to wake up? So, why, so like when is this over? Like when is he going to wake up and play? During that same year of my father's death, many other families, especially Medellin, were also mourning the loss of their family members. And that's because the Medellin murder rate peaked that same year. So how did Medellin get out of that chaos and violence and move to become the city that it is today? Right, so let's go back to the 1950s. Medellin was kind of like the industrial hub of Colombia. You know, there were 
many jobs in factories, in manufacturing, which attracted many people from the countryside to move to the city for you know, new jobs and opportunities. But in the 1980s, the city went through a deep economic crisis and many people were laid off. And there's a geographic situation that you kind of need to understand as well, because Medellin is set in the Andes Mountains, but the city itself is in this valley. And as people, migrants come to work in this industrial boomtown, they start creating these neighborhoods, these comunas around these mountain areas. You know, some people call them slums. And these areas, the comunas, were excluded from the city of Medellin because of their geographical distance. They were up there in the mountains. And also because the state and the city of Medellin allowed them to be isolated. The same time as the Medellin cartel was booming and in need of you know, these foot soldiers, many, many young people in the comunas were left to just fend for themselves in a sense. That was like the perfect place to recruit these young men and women to come join them to fight this war. But then things started to change. Here's Sandra Arenas, a sociologist and archivist in Medellin. De una gran tragedia. In the city's most tragic moment, she says, a formula was thought of to bring Medellin out of its situation and begin its transformation. She says the national government sent policymakers to hold these public forums and to meet with people across the city, entrepreneurs, artists, academics, intellectuals, journalists, and to listen to their ideas about how they thought the city could get out of this state of crisis. They prioritize the need to link the comunas on those steep hills to the city center, through a modern metro system. And this was really different than the way in which most cities have tackled crime. They were using transportation. A lot of other cities were investing in policing and military tactics. There is a lot of resistance coming from the arts, from theater, from music, in a way to resist this violence and to kind of like keep the city together. There were these artist collectives that were throwing outdoor dancing parades in the comunas. You had theater groups that were defying the cartel curfews with all-night plays. Art was central in the recovery of Medellin. And part of that was music and especially, yeah, punk music. Punk music flourished, like this movement just took off uh, with many young people in the comunas. And they created this very thriving punk scene in Medellin that's, that's alive today. Anyway, after these public forums in which the central government was meeting with community leaders and academics and artists, the local government started to implement some new ideas. So in 1995, the Medellin Metro opened its first line and it connected previously fragmented areas of the city. The rich suburb of the South was now connected directly to the poorer neighborhoods of the North. The Metro was seen as a tool for social inclusion and integration. And along with that Metro, 
the city of Medellin, like they went even further and they created something that I've never seen before, which was this extensive cable car system that was going up to the top of those steep mountains and then going down into the city center. And in these poor comunas, they were building libraries and parks and soccer fields and job training centers and health clinics. So in a way, Medellin's big innovation was to tackle crime and violence through urban planning, through urban design, through infrastructure, through social innovation and social programs. The city essentially starts to change. The murder rate starts to drop as people actually are reclaiming their streets. Before the metro system existed or the cable car system existed, many people in Medellin who lived in the comunas, they used to say, oh, I need to go to Medellin to run an errand, or I need to go to Medellin to go to school, meaning they needed to go downtown, even though they lived in the Medellin city limits. This metro system linked them physically to the city and also gave them a sense of belonging and made them feel part of the city as a whole. And people in Medellin are super proud of their metro system or the cable car system. Uh, I mean, the metro is over 20 years old now and you don't see a single piece of garbage on the tracks. I really wanted to see what this looked like up close. So Luis and I made our way on Medellin's metro to what is known as the infamous Comuna 13, or Comuna 13, which at one point was one of the most violent and stigmatized communities of these poor neighborhoods. And while we were there, we met with Perro Graf, who takes us around his neighborhood. He's showing us different graffiti walls that he's painted. And I mean, huge graffiti walls. So what are we seeing? (laughs) So like we're in a very urban setting. We're outdoors, we're on the street. Then you get to this little area and there's an escalator here in the middle of a outdoor community. Wow, you're riding escalators up a hill, literally, and it's taking you to the top of the city. But what you're also seeing is everywhere you turn, there's art. There's huge mural arts at every turn. Perro takes us to his neighborhood and he shows us the murals he's painted along the escalators. And then he leads us to the very top of the escalators where there's like a platform with a big lookout of the city and like the mountains and the downtown of Medellin. And in the backdrop, there are some kids breakdancing and, and freestyling. Y los quiero invitar en ese momentico a escuchar algunos rat- unos artistas de acá. Yeah, so then es we end up joining the freestyle acá, cipher and we listen to the kids rap. Se acerca el perro y el grafitero con estas líricas aquí yo siempre me esmero. Hey, sí, necesito entonces... This is a place that 30 years ago was unimaginable that somebody like me, somebody like Maria, tourists from other places would even want to come in. Even police officers and uh, law enforcement were afraid. And to see it today, you know, with art and color and tourists and music 
and kids just hanging out. It's a very, very stark contrast. In fact, foreign tourism has gone up in Colombia by 250% over the last decade. And Medellin has become one of the most visited cities in the country. But a lot of those tourists are coming to Medellin precisely because of the city's past and its drug trafficking legacy. It's something that the locals are calling narcoturismo, which is narco-tourism. So, Maria, we're getting close to the building. Now, Luis and I are in a cab, and we're slowly approaching El Edificio Monaco, which is the building compound where Pablo Escobar lived with his family. This building that we're looking at was once bombed by Pablo Escobar's rivals, the Cali cartel. And his wife and kids and mother were in the building when it happened. Now, though, it's become a tourist attraction. Yeah, no, it's totally a narco ruin. It's old. It looks dated. Oh, my gosh, there are some tourists right behind us. I think we need to go talk to them. Yeah, let's go talk Come to on, them. Come on, let's go. <laughs> Hola. ¿Podemos hacerles unas preguntas? Claro. ¿De dónde son? De Italia. Italia. Ah, de México. Estoy de México. Paisano. Somos periodistas. Ah, okay. Do you guys speak English? Yes. Okay. So, is this your first time in Medellín? No, 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 no. It's not the first time. Why did you want to? If you've been to Medellín many times before, why did you decide that today you wanted to come? My my son asked me to to come to see where Pablo Escobar was living. So, your son in Italy. My son in Italy. Yes. How old is your son? Twelve. Twelve years old. Okay, wait, what? Your twelve-year-old <laughs> son in Milan, Italy, yes. said to you, "Dad, if you're going to Colombia and you're going to Medellin, you've got to go see the building where Pablo Escobar used to live." Yes, and if you find me also some caps and some t-shirts with Medellin, <laughs> please to bring me back. So exactly. What do you think about that? I think this is the result of Netflix and uh, all the series. And I, I, I can understand. And I find it interesting that it's a Mexican and an Italian coming to Colombia. I was like, it's countries that have <laughs> mafias, that have cartels, that have been <laughs> stigmatized for the cartels. The Godfather, Italian, Chel Chapo, Mexicans. and they are at the Pablo Escobar <laughs> building. There are many people in the city now that are trying to make some money, to make some profit uh, from this type of you know, narco-tourism. Even Popeye takes groups of people to these narco-relics, including, you know, Edificio Monaco, where Pablo Escobar used to live, um, to his grave, and to the house where he was gunned down. Lo vamos a demoler, y ahí vamos a construir un parque en honor a todas las víctimas de la violencia. That's Medellín's former mayor, Federico Gutierrez. He tells us about his plan to tear down El Edificio Monaco and to build a museum and a park in its place to remember the victims. He says it's not about hiding history, but rather to transform it. It's not about forgetting, but about healing together and remembering the victims. La Medellín de Netflix no es la Medellín real. The mayor says that the Medellin from Netflix isn't the real one, but that it's true that terrible things took place in this city and that they shouldn't be forgotten because, in fact, that's what made the city hit rock bottom. And he says that's what made the people of Medellin come together as a society. Yeah, I mean, there's a concern that many of the visitors to the city are coming because of that that fascination with Netflix, with Narcos, 
with Pablo Escobar, which in a sense continues to perpetuate kind of that that stereotype and that stigma that the city has had and that is trying to get rid of. As Colombians, we're, we're trying to get past that collective trauma of that time. But Medellin is a totally different place today, and it's become a model for other cities. Homicides here have gone down by 90% over the last 30 years. At one point, Medellin was the most dangerous city in the world. But now, its murder rate is even lower than many American cities, including Las Vegas and Detroit. So about five years after my father's death, my family ended up leaving Colombia, and we moved to Seattle, Washington. But you actually decide to come back to Colombia around the time that the Colombian government was getting ready to sign a peace deal with the FARC, the guerrilla group that assassinated your dad. Luis, why did you decide to come back to Colombia? Because I think it was a strategic moment, uh, both in my own family history, in my own personal history, and the country's history, to finally come together and try to process what happened and maybe find a way to heal and forgive and turn the page collectively. So the day the peace accord was finally signed by the government, by the president and the FARC leader, there was a big concert in Bogota's main square. At the concert, you know, there were, you know, many people were in white. There were a lot of white flags and balloons symbolizing peace and reconciliation. But at the same time, I noticed a lot of red flags and people were in red shirts. And I was there with a friend who works for the president. And she confirmed that, you know, the people wearing the red shirts and waving the red flags were FARC urban militia members that were part of the celebration. So later on in the concert, the band Atrecepelados, which is a rock band, comes to the stage and the, the, the lead singer, Andrea Echeverri, she asked everyone in the crowd to hug a stranger, to hug somebody that you didn't come with, just in the name of peace. This guy, who was wearing a red shirt, came up to me and gave me like a swig of aguardiente, which is the Colombian, you know, liquor. And, you know, so I took a swig of the aguardiente bottle and then he gave me a hug. So you mean that guy in the red shirt was potentially in some way connected to the same group that basically ordered your dad to be killed? Yeah, and it was a very surreal moment. Many of us Colombians would have never imagined or dreamed of. I was honoring my father's life by embracing this new chapter of our history. After being back in Medellin after 30 years and being there with you, Luis, it's pretty undeniable that Medellin today is a totally different city and it's a better city for its people. Now, it's true. There are still lots of issues like the massive inequality and the drug trafficking that still exists. But 
Medellin has come up with its own innovative solutions in order to mitigate these problems. Medellin's transformation is also symbolic of what many Colombians are going through, of transforming from a place of hate and violence to a new, hopeful, more peaceful, more reconciled future in Colombia. There have been a few updates since this story originally broadcast in June of 2018. The Colombian government went through plans to demolish El Edificio Monaco and level the compound in February of 2019. Also, about a month after we spoke to Popeye, Colombia's national police arrested and charged him with extortion. He was hospitalized in December with late-stage stomach cancer. He passed away in early February of 2020. This story was reported by me and Luis Gallo. It was produced by Sayer Quevedo and edited by Fernanda Chavarri. Special thanks to Diego Sr. for his voicing of Popeye for this piece. Latino USA is produced by Miguel Macias, Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoka, Alisa Escarce, and Alejandra Salazar, with help this week from Joanne DeLuna, Ginny Montalvo, and Raul Perez. We're edited by Sofia Palizacá and Luis Treyes. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our interns are Julia Inés Esparza and Julia Rocha. Fact-checking by Nidia Bautista. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, I'll see you on all of our social media. Ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. The Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. And New York Women's Foundation. The New York Women's Foundation, funding women leaders that build solutions in their communities and celebrating 30 years of radical generosity. Right now, every household in the country is being asked to fill out the U.S. Census. It's the form that helps us determine how voting districts are redrawn, where to build public schools and hospitals, how to spend federal money. So why are some people afraid to fill it out? We're getting into all that this week on NPR's Code Switch podcast. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, we explore intuition, the science behind it. You use emotional kind of a memory to guide on decision. And how intuition is a guiding principle behind a Latinx feminist movement. It's just really difficult times that need not just political responses, but spiritual responses. That's next time on Latino USA.